0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Brody Sharp. For those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll probably recognize that name as Brody has been on the podcast a couple times in the past for episodes 240 and 258. So if you enjoy this episode and want to hear more discussion with Brody, those would be some good ones to go check out. Brody has a Bachelor of Health Science and Masters of Physiotherapy, and he is also the founder of the Run Smarter series and hosts the Run Smarter podcast. Brody recently took a lot of the information that he's been sharing on his channels and put it in book form. He sent me that book, I gave it a read, and I picked a few chapters that I thought would be especially interesting to discuss in more detail with him and share with all of you. Those topics include detecting and managing early signs of injury, training basics for injury reduction, and strength training and cross training within those topics i found it especially interesting to hear brady describe a few things one is his pain scale so how do you determine whether a certain level of pain is appropriate to train through versus needing to stop what type of pain do you maybe need to completely shut it down and avoid weight bearing altogether versus adding a stimulus to that area to help improve the recovery pace and eventually get you back to the activities that you enjoy And also this concept he has called the new adaptation zones, which is just basically like same thing as training load, where if you remember in other pockets I've talked about, like proper training is going to be working within an intensity and training load and volume that is going to work with you in terms of giving you enough stress to make an improvement, but not so much that you're setting yourself back or taking future workouts off the table. Brody has essentially created an adaptation zone Setup where you kind of do the same thing with injuries that are better served with some sort of activity and then making sure that you're managing your work within those zones properly to ensure that you get over that injury quicker rather than having it linger around or flare back up on you. Before we get rolling with Brody, just a few things to share with you. If you are visiting or live in Austin, Texas, I actually help with a group run. It's called the Outliers ATX. We meet on Sunday mornings at Metz Park. We've actually expanded it a bit to having a couple options. What we found out is some of our regulars were a bit 50-50 split on what was better for their schedules versus an 8 a.m. and a 9 a.m. option. We were also kind of considering stretching out a little bit of a longer run option for some of them as well. So we decided to try to combine all that. And essentially what we did is we have two starting times. We have a starting time at 8 a.m. and a starting time at 9 a.m. So if you prefer one of those over the other, you can come and check it out. Or if you want to double up on your running volume that morning, you can come to both of them. I'll be at both. And oftentimes we will do a small clinic between them. So if you want to come and check out, meet and hang out, Definitely do so. If you have a topic that you'd like sandwiched between those eight and nine a.m. options, certainly send them my way. Happy to add them to the list of future future topics. If you want more details on that for specifics, uh, head over to the Outliers ATX Instagram page. It's just at Outliers ATX. Also, if you want to support the show you can do so through a variety of ways. If you head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, you can find links there to the show Patreon page. The show Patreon page offers you the option to support the show and also receive early release episodes, meaning as soon as I get done recording, whether it's a solo episode or a guest interview, I try to get it up there as quickly as possible so you just get access to it a little sooner than all the other podcast platforms, and those episodes are all ad-free. So we jump right into the topic at hand, no interruptions. If you don't want to join Patreon, we want to support the show. There's also some options for donations on that website, zachbittercom forward slash HPO. On that landing page, you'll also find all the links to previous episodes, details, links and discount codes for show sponsors and everything that is kind of going to go along with specific episodes. One of the best ways you can support the show, though, is non-monetarily by simply liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. If there's an episode you really enjoy, sharing it with your friends and family and on social media platforms goes a long way helping me grow the podcast. Also, when I'm not podcasting and training and racing ultra marathons, I am also coaching people. I have a variety of different options on my website at ZachBitter.com that include pre-made plans that follow my coaching philosophy, as well as options to work on, work with me one-on-one through a variety of different uh, collaboration methods from me specifically programming your training to the specific schedule and lifestyle you have and goal race all the way to communicating with me on a very regular basis. I've got it scaled in a way where whatever level of support you want and desire, you can find. So if that's something that's interesting to you, you can find that at zackbitter.com. Finally, if one of the show sponsors has a product that you are interested in checking out, it goes a long way to let them know that you came through here. You can find all the show sponsors at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode sponsors include optimizers, Magnesium Breakthrough and Bond Charges Sleep Mask and Blue Block Glasses. right let's talk a bit about magnesium magnesium is abundant in things like green leafy vegetables nuts seeds legumes and whole grains magnesium is also an antagonist of calcium in the body and is required for vitamin d synthesis and activation as such magnesium deficiency can inhibit the potential benefits of things like vitamin d supplementation if your way of eating does not include many magnesium rich foods or you have these but still experience low levels of magnesium, you might want to consider BiOptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. Supplementing with magnesium can have its downsides, one of which can be a laxative effect, which could just exasperate the problem that you're trying to solve. Magnesium Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium product that I recommend, partly because of its full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb magnesium breakthrough has also updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like b6 and manganese to help with the absorption of the magnesium this now comes along with their seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium this can help with things like sleep improvement stress reduction and a sense of calm if you need to add extra magnesium into your diet simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens Optimizers continues to offer their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee so you can test it out risk-free. If interested, let them know that HPO sent you by going to buyoptimizers.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use the promo code human, that's H-U-M-A-N, for 10% off your next order. I also want to share with you that this month from November 21st through the 29th by optimizers is actually offering a 25% off discount. So if you use that code by forward slash human, you will receive 25% off any orders, including magnesium breakthrough from November 21st through the 29th bond charge is a holistic wellness brand with a range of products that help you navigate the modern environment in a better way they focus on things like circadian rhythm and optimal sleep routines i've been using two of their products these include their 100 blackout sleep masks and their blue light blocking glasses good sleep hygiene like a cool temperature environment pitch black darkness and a quiet environment can go a long way to help you stay asleep and maximize your nighttime rest so personally i like a consistent routine i can replicate whether i am at home or traveling Being able to replicate my routine as close as possible makes it easier to consistently get a good night's sleep regardless of whether I am home or traveling. I use the Bond Charge Sleep Mask to make sure I have the same 100% blackout regardless if I am at home or traveling. The material on the Bond Charge Sleep Mask is comfortable, adjustable, and allows me to sleep on my back or sides without discomfort. The soft padded eye cups allow you to open your eyes while wearing the mask. I also spend a lot of time every day staring at computer screens, phones, and tablets while recording, editing podcasts, answering emails, and writing my coaching plans. I use the Bond Charge blue light blocking glasses while trying to stay an arm's width away from the screen when possible and refocusing my eyesight every 20 minutes. This helps minimize discomfort from blue light and glare from staring at screens all day. If you want to check out either of these products and the rest of the things that Bond Charge has on their website, you can go to Bondcharge.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save twenty percent off your order. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save twenty percent off your order. Bond charge ships worldwide in rapid time and has easy return and exchanges if you are not satisfied. Brody, thanks for uh, jumping on the, the podcast again.
1: Thanks for having me back on, Zach. I'm excited to have a chat.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you, as we were kind of discussing before I hit record, uh, you've been been quite busy for a while now with uh, a rather a rather lengthy book, uh, but every word is worth it, in my opinion. And it has <laughs> to do with the injury prevention. Well, a lot to do with injury prevention. So, what was uh, what was maybe the catalyst to decide? All right, I'm going to put pen to paper, so to speak, and let all my thoughts, ideas, and research uh, within the the physical therapy side of things. Uh, what did, what kind of generated that?
1: It was always an idea of mine, but I never knew really how to write a book or publish a book. And so, um, I guess it probably started when I started the podcast because at the time I started the Run Smarter podcast, I actually released an ebook to sort of accompany it. So the first ten episodes of that podcast were ten universal principles to reduce injury risk, and I had an ebook like laying out those chapters and kind of displaying a few of those. And it was just a quick little easy read type of thing. Um, But that sort of premise came into the actual book as well. Um, But it took a long time for me to think and sort of build up the resources, look at the evidence, even interviewing a whole bunch of people on my podcast. I use all those resources for about two or three years of resources into compiling the book And um, I released it halfway in between that time. I released a second ebook because I recognized not only do runners want to reduce their risk of injury as much as they can, that seems to be like the number one desire, but the number two for most was to increase their running performance safely. And so knowing that released another, a second ebook on again, 10 chapters, 10 topics on how to increase running performance safely. And that went really well, got a lot of great feedback. And then I thought I have, a good template for, you know, fully fleshing out a book and I've got all these interviews I've done with experts and I've got all this research that I've read and I've got all, um, some of my opinions as well on certain topics that doesn't have particularly uh, a lot of evidence. And so, yeah, put it into a a book. It took me more than 12 months of, you know, working five plus hours per day to write it. And it was (laughs) a big grind, but eventually got out and I'm super happy with the, the final product.
0: Yeah. And you kept kind of just churning out your normal workload along the, along the way it seemed like, uh, as well, or did you have to put some of the stuff on pause in order to make room for that?
1: To the, I did pretty well with, um, maintaining most of my output of everything else, um, my content creation, but to the very, very pointy end, I had to go from my podcast releasing two episodes per week to releasing one episode per week. Um, I had figured once the book was released, I was going to focus my attention on launching a YouTube channel. And so I've since done that, but the, when it got down to the, a lot of hours to to publish the book at the final, like, you know, the final hour I had to back off my um, podcast releasing frequency to once per week. So I could get it done. And then now it's staying at once a week, got the YouTube channel that's being released once a week. And so it that was always the, the idea, the goal to have in mind. I just had to pull back that frequency a bit earlier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something has to give because at the end of the day, there's still only 24 hours in <laughs> a day. And, yeah. and as you alluded to in the book, uh, things like sleep and stress actually play a play a role in training load. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, want to, I so. want
1: to treasure my sleep as much as possible.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think uh, one thing I really did enjoy about the book was the way you sort of framed kind of Once you do have some sort of an early sign of an injury or even have the full on like flare up of something, looking at the rehab process in the same lens as you would like progressively moving through a training plan, because I think a lot of runners kind of understand that the idea or the name of the game is to. Uh, you know, give your body enough stress to elicit a response, recover from that, and then kind of rinse and repeat, and then do that specifically to whatever, you know, race distance that you're kind of preparing for. And when people get injured, though, I don't know that they always think about the same way where it's like, okay, I've got this one area of my body that now needs to be tested and discovered as to what it can and can't tolerate, and then start from there and begin that process of kind of bringing it back up to full speed. I thought that was a really, really great way to kind of break that down and make it relatable to something runners likely already have a lot of knowledge about.
1: Yeah. uh, I often wish uh, that some runners could just look at the way I work with different runners of with different injuries, because the process is essentially the same. Uh, A lot of we. I chatted like last time I was on your podcast, we chatted about the adaptation zone and building up safely and making sure that, you know, you train within this sweet spot so that you get stronger and your body adapts because of it. And then you can handle higher training loads later. And people need to recognize that when they are injured, that injured area has a new adaptation zone. Like it's a bit more sensitive. It's a little bit more painful. It can't withstand the same training loads it once could, but it still has uh, an adaptation zone. It still has a sweet spot. We just need to find it, know what it is, and then build back up. Um, it's trying to find that sweet spot and interpreting symptoms accurately, which can be a, a bit tricky for most recreational runners who aren't too sure like how to interpret their symptoms. So that's where some guidance might be. Uh, advised. But for the most part, yes, you're right. We're treating it the same way we would with training. It's just the starting point is a little bit different based on what injury, how severe it is and those sort of characteristics.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think just like I was reading it through the kind of through the lens of a coach's eye. And it, it was like kind of becoming clear to me, especially as you would work through some of the uh, I like the the stories that you'd have kind of at the beginning of the chapters where you would kind of walk people through a, a scenario in which then you would dive into and explain kind of like how you would address that sort of a situation. And it just felt kind of like, oh, you know, this experience of having an injury and then going to a professional to kind of help navigate that that territory is just like the coaching client relationship where you have that, you know, that that person who kind of has a larger view of like kind of where they want to be or where they're trying to get. And then scaffolding that down to like individual steps that they're going to need to do in in a specific order in order to, to finally arrive at where they're at. And it just kind of felt felt like the same kind of a relationship just with a little bit of a different kind of goal and outcome.
1: Yeah. It's accountability and sort of not letting the runner themselves sort of irrationally talk themselves through running through an injury it's like a plan you sort of come up with a plan and you need the education to back it up which coaches have um mm-hmm. it's they, they serve the purpose of providing the education but also the plan to sort of limit what a runner can do or you know just create certain restrictions if needed um but the runner themselves they can learn these principles they can like educate themselves on what to do Uh, some runners know what to do, but then choose not to follow that advice. They sort of recognize, or they think they're different or they just, they're emotionally driven when they run and just decide to exclude or remove those particular barriers. And then they're wondering why they're not getting better. But I've had a lot of runners reach out to me and say, Brody, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice being an online physio. That I've I've been like managing and overcoming my injuries just listening to your content without needing to seek you out and I say well that's you know that's the purpose that's why I want to design the YouTube channel the book the podcast is to try and educate run as much as possible because if you can if you can overcome that injury by like educating yourself increasing your running IQ and abiding by those principles without any help or intervention then I've done my job but if it is a struggle if someone is learning these principles, trying it out, and still not seeing those results. I want to be the first person that they go to for questions because they're—I'm the person who's sort of delivered all that information to them, um, and it's—I don't hold anything back. I try and educate everything I know to these people. It's just up to them if they want to absorb it, you know, understand it, and then start implementing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always interesting because I think like what you described—it's like you scale out your reach so that your, you know, your potential, um, the potential of people finding you when they do arrive at a situation where uh, they may need a little bit of help outside of just kind of the the general population type stuff that are able to scale up to things like YouTube channels and podcasts and newsletters and all that other stuff, books and whatnot. There's always going to be those ones that require a little bit of individual attention. And I think like if you have a you know, a group of uh, thankful runners that are paying attention to your content when they do find themselves in a spot like that, then you're going to be on the top of their mind. And then uh, having that, that uh, setup, I guess, where you sort of almost have like an education built into that, that client, because they were consuming your content previously, you you probably have a lot better of, a, of an onboarding process, I would imagine a lot less of the kind of early stage stuff that just is um, maybe a little bit repetitive, a little more like monotonous for for what I would imagine would be kind of your side of the job? Yeah, definitely. There's
1: Well, some people, if they have ITB syndrome, sometimes they use YouTube or um, the podcast sort of directory as a bit of a search bar. So they type in ITB syndrome and then certain episodes pop up. And then um, sometimes they find this sort of content straight away and then say, Oh no, I'll just go straight to Brody. I have a a free 20 minute injury chat that I advertise on my podcast. And so sometimes people aren't that familiar. They've listened to one or two episodes and like, no, I've made up my mind. Let's go there. But for the most part, when I do start working with runners who've been listening to the podcast for a while. They're like, yes, Burry, I get this. I understand this. I understand the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. I've started strength training I'm, and they've got such a head start. All we need to do is just make some finer tweaks. And like I said, some people overcome their injury really well without needing any other intervention, but the ones that do need like a slight tweak here and there based on individual circumstances, um, all we do need is sometimes that slight tweak and it just makes such a difference.
0: Yeah. I can just imagine a scenario where the the client's coming in and they're like quoting you from episode 73 about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They
1: say, I start training. They're like, as soon as I put on my shoes and start training, I've got your voice in my head because I've listened to so many episodes on how to train and how to do it sensibly. And, you know, your voice is just in the back of my mind every time. And I think it's a good thing. Hopefully, um, hopefully it's guiding them in the right direction.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I think uh, I think you're you're doing some great stuff and I'm certainly uh, excited to kind of dive into some of the stuff that you've just recently published in your book. Um I know there was there's like three chapters I thought that we would maybe touch on with this interview and dive in a little deeper and uh one of those was try just just this detecting and managing the early signs of an injury because I think this is maybe the most important kind of step one type of thing with a lot of runners where you kind of come into the sport or if you've been in the sport for a while, you learn sort of early on that, like just the nature of things. A lot of times it's not really a question of like, if you're going to get injured, it's when is something going to pop up that kind of resembles the early signs of an injury. And then, How you manage that will determine kind of what happens next, whether it's just maybe a small deterrence and a learning lesson that it only costs you a few days of training all the way up to, you know, having to shut things down and take an off season kind of rehab off of running and then gradually back into it. And I think starting from that detection and managing side of things early on is just what's going to give people the information to recognize these things before they get too far down that path and find themselves in a situation where they need extensive time off and rather than just a quick fix.
1: Yeah. Should, but should start by saying that my view on injuries, especially running related injuries is you can't get that risk down to zero. And I lay this out in the book. This is like, some people may disagree with me. I'm not sure, but I think, and there are certain outliers or, you know, people who just seem to run and not get injured. I think that's so rare and so far removed from, recreational runners or ultra runners communities that, um, we sort of need to have a bit more realistic expectations because you could do everything, right. You could follow every rule. And for some reason, you know, these early signs just keep popping up. And I do like to think, um, we can't get that risk down to zero, the risk of injury, but we can educate ourselves so that when these early signs do pop up, we know exactly what to do. We know exactly how to interpret symptoms. And we know what to do to return to full fitness or return to, I guess, pain-free running without losing fitness. I think that's that's where I like to sit. It's where I like to sort of um, place myself as, you know, around this injury prevention topic. And it sort of is a bit reassuring in a way for people to to grasp that because you can have the best athletes in the world break down and get injured and you can have some recreational runners think that there's something wrong with them. They think the way they move is different or there's some firing issue or imbalance or leg length discrepancy, or they can really be down on themselves. And it can be quite threatening a lot of the times with what they believe is why they're getting injured. Um, When in fact, they're probably just doing a little bit too much or they've done something a little bit too abrupt, or maybe they're not recovering as well. Maybe they're not sleeping as well. Um, But when these things do arise, like I say, detecting early signs of injury and managing early signs of injury can be really key and, Intervention does need to be taken when these early signs pop up uh, to negotiate it swiftly without losing fitness. And then when you're back to pain-free running and it's only been maybe one or two weeks and you haven't lost fitness, then it's a it can just launch you into that next, you know, pain-free period of another six months instead of mismanaging it in the early days because you haven't detected and managed it well enough, then it turns into a two-month or three-month injury that does become harder to negotiate and maybe you might have to start losing fitness and take some downtime. And that process is a lot more, it's a lot harder to negotiate, a lot harder to overcome than the prior one when you have detected and managed it really early on. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of times when we think of like symptoms and detection and this sort of thing, the, the signal that, that we're oftentimes looking for with with this sort of stuff is often like pain or tightness or some sort of discomfort that wasn't there. That is now that goes above and beyond what you would normally expect from just like general soreness that may happen from like a big training session or some delayed onset muscle soreness or something like that. And then it becomes a question of like, well, there's this pain or discomfort here. What do I do with that? And a lot of times I know I've done this as a coach too, is like we're looking at it through the lens of, no movement to that area in most cases outside of like, obviously like stress fractures or broken bones and things like that. Some mobility in that area is, is actually the next step versus complete isolation of that or like lack of movement of that area altogether. So then we're on this pain scale type of thing where it's like, well, how bad is it bothering you? What can we do to kind of find a point where you're adequately Uh, putting yourself into that that right uh, adaptation zone that you mentioned, but not exceeding it. And knowing like a pain scale can be kind of subjective. I really enjoyed in that chapter, how you talked about just creating kind of like a perceived effort pain scale so that people could look at that and say, okay, here's where I fall on this. This is my next step, because this is where I fall on this chart versus kind of just coming up with their own like Definition of what three out of 10 pain or four out of 10 pain kind of ends up falling under?
1: Yeah, it's something I needed to put in and something that I was struggling to realize like, how do I write it? How do I describe it? Because it's not really medically defined because everyone interprets pain differently. Everyone has different sensitivities and people just tolerate pain differently. Um, people experience and describe pain differently. So, really, really tough to. Put into a concept, but like you say, um, when when you are injured, you do have a certain adaptation zone, and it's important that you don't completely rest an overuse injury because spending a lot of time completely resting, like if it's more than a week, you're actually deconditioning that area and you're deconditioning the rest of your body, so that adaptation zone actually starts diminishing, and so that's going to be a, a more of a struggle to return back to pain-free running because the odds of you returning back and doing too much and exceeding that new depleted adaptation zone is going to be quite high. And then symptoms increase, you think you need more time off, you take more time off, and that um, pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, I like to call it, starts to take effect. Um, so, yes, sometimes a little bit of discomfort is actually okay. Loading that um, joint or whatever area is sore can be okay, but certain pain rules need to be applied. And this is outlined in the book and I've outlined in my podcast as well. For the most part, during activity, that could be running, that could be strength training, that could be cross training. We like to say that a pain less than a four out of 10 is what we deem acceptable. And so that can be mild symptoms of pain that doesn't disrupt your natural mechanics. It doesn't, you are not limping, um, you've got a a full fluent kind of motion through that action. And you don't feel like you're compensating in any way. You feel just as confident to plant the ground. Let's use running as an example. And let's just say it's an ITB or an Achilles or a calf or something like that. When you hit the ground and push off the ground, you should be just as confident as the other side. And Mm. you know, you can still have that confidence, but it's still be like a, a one or a two out of 10 pain. And so, That's how I like to define it or like add characteristics to a pain scale, a pain level. Um, But that's only one pain rule. There are other additional rules that need to be accompanied with that. So yes, pain during exercise needs to be less than a four out of 10, but we need to observe and monitor the pain after that bout of exercise to make sure that you've tolerated that bout because some some injuries they can actually diminish during exercise when you've warmed up tendons are very classic have this warm up effect where it might be a little bit grumpy when you first start and then when you've warmed up it can completely go away but then it comes back with vengeance later on the next morning or something plantar fasciitis is another one where the morning symptoms tend to be the worst when you first wake up and walk around and we can't ignore that we need to pay attention to those characteristics and so um the first pain rule was pain during exercise. The second pain rule was recognizing pain after and the next day. And we need to make sure that symptoms return back to baseline to know that we've tolerated that bout of exercise well. And the other the other rule that I like to add in is making sure that the symptoms are improving week by week. It's sort of like that long-term trend, which isn't seen in the research, but I've just added in there because I've recognized people can pass these rules, they can say, yeah, it's a two out of 10 while I run. It returns to baseline the next day, but I've had it for four months now and it just hasn't gone away. And so that fails the third sort of pain rule. And so we really need to pay attention to it. We need to, like we say, detect early signs of injury, but we also need to manage those early signs of injury. So that comes into that management, management component.
0: Mm-hmm. that was a really interesting part of the chapter to me because i've had my own experiences with what you exactly described as well as coaching clients where they'll report back and they'll say like you know what i've got this thing that's been bothering me but for whatever reason it doesn't bother me when i run but it bothers me like throughout the rest of the day and that kind of cleared up some of the you know the the next step operation things for me as a coach was like well if it's bothering you outside of the run, you know, you're we're possibly in that situation you just described where, you know, you're warming up the area and then it feels relatively decent during the activity you're trying to do, which is where I think a lot of the people tend to focus on whether it's bothering them or not. And as, as runners who want to keep running, we think, well, if running doesn't hurt, I'm going to keep doing that. And just I'll deal with the discomfort about my, the rest of my day. But then, yeah, like you mentioned, if that discomfort outside of the run itself, Begins to escalate or even plateaus and lingers for months on end. It's like you just you really haven't addressed the situation, but rather maybe just put a bandaid on it. Yeah,
1: and yeah, we we, we can get carried away. We can give ourselves a bit of a green light when you can run symptom free. But I know if you mismanage it for quite a long time, it gets quite irritated. That warm up effect sort of becomes less and less. Like sometimes you could warm up and then be pain free. But if it's mismanaged and getting quite severe, you still get that warm up effect. But then that instead of zero out of ten, it turns into a one, and then it turns into a two. So you might start off with a six out of ten, and then it improves, but dampens down to a two out of ten. But you know, a month ago it was zero out of ten during the warm up phase. So you know, we need to be really careful um, not give ourselves that green light. That's why we need to factor in all of those running rules, uh, all those pain rules, to make sure that. Um, that injury is getting better and that adaptation zone is starting to elevate back to pre-injury levels.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way I was kind of summarizing that in my head after reading it was just like if that pain scale increases either during the activity or outside of the activity progressively over time, you're heading in the wrong direction. You want to see that going going down over time, which I think makes sense when we start to really think about it and uh, take our, our running emotions out of the equation.
1: <laughs> it's hard to take your your emotions out of it. Like people yeah. love they live in the heat of the moment and they love running. They do it for mental health. They do it for community. They have so many desires and ambitions and reasons for running that when you're injured it can be really hard to do the sensible, rational thing. But you know, sometimes that's what's needed and sometimes it takes a bit of self-reflection saying, how have I been over the last six months? Like, have I just been dealing with one injury for this six months? Have I had three different injuries over six months? Um, just takes a bit of self reflection and take away from the the heat of the moment of the week by week or the race to race, which a lot of runners just dive into the next race, the next race, and they can get into a fair bit of trouble just overtraining and uh, mismanaging symptoms.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing in that chapter that really stood out to me that was a little bit of a uh. A- a good piece of, uh, advice to give myself and think about when I'm working with my clients who maybe have an injury or something like that is just this, uh, this idea that like your body structures, including your tendons require close to 24 hours to actually process the workload that you just gave it. Uh, this makes sense to me from a training standpoint, because it's like, if I go and do short intervals and maybe overdo it by like one or two, and then the next day I find out because my legs are a little more sore than they should have been, uh, or if I am trying to train like downhill running or something and I just go a little too far on the first session and the next day I'm a little too sore and I take a future workout off the table. Those are clear signs to me that I need to adjust the workload to be more uh, in line with um, with that adaptation zone from just the training side of things. But it hadn't really I hadn't really thought of it the same way with an injury where if I'm dealing with something and there's a little bit of discomfort there that is still below that four of ten. But then I wake up the next morning, 24 hours later, and it has exceeded the pain threshold that I had had the day before, which would be that sign that we talked about where you're heading in the wrong direction. It just doesn't always make intuitive sense in our minds, I think, with injuries, the way it does maybe with a workout.
1: A a way to think about it, um, a way to conceptualize it is you don't get stronger during those hard workouts. You get stronger after those workouts when you've had adequate recovery and certain time is required. If you go from hard session to hard session, to hard session, there's an accumulation of fatigue and load that your body needs to you know, start to acclimatize to, or needs time to soak in that particular exercise and say, okay, I need to adapt to this. But if you keep going from one session to the next, you don't have that recovery to back off and therefore you're not going to get stronger. If anything, you're probably going to get injured. Um, and that is the same for performance when you're not injured. You need to respect the recovery process because you don't get stronger during those workouts. You get stronger after when adequate recovery has been achieved. When you're injured, we need that bout of exercise, but then we need recovery on the on the back end. Um, sometimes that recovery can be your easy run. You can do a hard session, and then that next day is a really low intense session, which is just enough to for the body to still recover. But we need to interpret those symptoms carefully. If you're sore two days after and like you say um, usually tendons and muscles they have a 24hour kind of what we call their um, synthesis. They have a 48hour synthesis phase which is recognizing that activity, adapting to that activity and ready to train again. Um, when you're a bit older, that that phase actually is a bit longer so it can can be 48 hours um, instead of 24. Um, for bones, the bone synthesis, that turnover is a lot slower. Sometimes that's a couple of weeks, which is why someone who might have a bone stress reaction, they've actually been overloading themselves for several weeks, and then something starts to reveal itself. So, you know, we do need to be careful. It's it's something that we need to recognize, um, recognize the importance of the recovery phase and not just training, working hard, rehabbing. Um, it's about finding that balance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you don't mind, let's dive a little bit into just like stress reactions, because I think that's an interesting one where uh, it's a little bit of a bigger type of injury threat when you're looking at something like a stress fracture, I think, because oftentimes that does mean complete removal of weight bearing. And, you know, with other uh, with other injuries, like even limited training or cross training can sometimes be an option that's available, so you don't necessarily feel like you got your your, your workout ripped from you altogether the way you may with a stress fracture or some bone-related issue. Is is there like symptoms that specifically start to pop up with a stress reaction that runners can look for if they feel like they're maybe heading down that road and, and possibly catch it before it does turn into a full stress fracture?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you, you raised that point because these pain rules actually don't apply to stress fractures. They apply to... Uh, All other running related injuries and overuse injuries, but stress fractures seem to be that exception to the rule. Um, If you are recovering from a stress fracture and do have permission to start returning to exercise, you need to be symptom free. It it can't be that less than four out of 10 during activity and the 24 hour response, it just needs to be zero, essentially. That's um, the safest approach because the risk of getting it wrong can be quite high. And depending on the location of the stress fracture, there can be Um, higher risks associated with that. Um, Symptoms, like it can, in the early days, it can really masquerade as a soft tissue injury, which is why when you interview people that have had stress fractures, it's picked up really far down the track. Uh, It's like mismanaged or misdiagnosed in the early months just because it can masquerade as something like shin splints and all of a sudden you've got um, a stress fracture or bone stress reaction in your shin bone instead. you know, plantar fasciitis can actually be like a, um, a heel, um, stress reaction and people have stress fractures in their hips, which are really hard to diagnose. Uh, but certain characteristics, let's just say if we use like the ankle or the shin, um, if it's sore to press on the bone, big warning sign, it shouldn't be sore to press on the bone. It's, um, if it's shin splints, or if it's some sort of tendon, it's sort of press on the fascia or on, the tendon. But yeah, tenderness on the bone, you know, we'd probably want to get that scanned depending on the history. Um, if you've had a history of like um, poor diet or like um, some sort of, um, you know, body weight issues, I know stress fractures are very common with people that have um, Red S, the relative energy deficiency um, in sports, and they underfuel themselves and they lose weight because they've got pressure to, you know, lose weight in competitions and they're training at really high loads and they're just not fueling their body enough. They're really underweight. And if they've had a stress fracture in the past, you know, you really want to be careful with these particular symptoms. So if I had a client that had two stress fractures in the past, and they're now complaining of pain around their shins, um, I'd probably get them scanned pretty quickly just to make sure it's not a, another stress reaction. Um, other signs, sometimes this is like a bit further in its pathology, but an achiness or like a dull gripping sort of tightness, particularly at night when you're not loading that, that injury, uh, can be a bit of a sign that it's can be a bone stress reaction. People often report it. It feels like restricted and tight and dull sort of achy sort of throbbing pain just at night, just laying in bed, um those sorts of things and then just pain with loading uh the more loading that you do if that increases the symptoms like we said sometimes a uh, tendon injury might warm up as the uh as your activity progresses as as you warm up but sometimes with stress reactions it gets worse so the more you run the worse and worse it gets and then all of a sudden walking loading during that walking phase becomes problematic and that's a uh, Sometimes some signs, but you do need to correlate it with the history. You need to correlate it with other symptoms. You need to correlate with a lot of things to bring you to the diagnosis that it might be a stress reaction. And then we send you for scans. It won't just be as simple as I have pain at night. It might be a stress reaction. There's a, a, a whole bunch of other factors that need to sort of come together for us to have a, a higher likelihood that we suspect a stress fracture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, I thankfully only had one stress fracture in my running career, but it mapped kind of what you said, where it presented itself a bit as a soft tissue issue at first. And then, and I thought I had just like, I had been sitting in a car seat a lot more than I had historically for a while. I thought it was just maybe some tightness in like the lower back area. And it turned out after doing some like active release therapy and different types of mobility stuff that it hadn't, been going away for a few weeks. So we ended up getting the scan and it turned out there was a very small stress fracture on my right sacral ala. So thankfully we caught it early enough where it ended up only being about five to seven weeks without, without running before I was able to kind of resume activity. Um, but had I continued down that path, you know, those type of stress fractures typically can sometimes be quite lengthy. And I've had some friends who had similar ones that they didn't address early enough and ended up being like nine months of, of no running before they were able to finally get everything back in order. So Um, those ones, I think scare runners the most.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's not that common, I guess, ultra runners might be a little bit more common, but, um, you know, stress fractures in your, like around your pelvis and back isn't that common, but you're very, very lucky. They got picked up early because people get low back pain and people have like non-specific low back pain. And you can just try to manage that for six to 12 months before someone might actually have a clue and then prompt the right investigation. So yeah, well done.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate that the doctor I was working with wasn't super uh, adverse to doing an MRI right away. Or not, I shouldn't say right away. We did wait a few weeks before we ended up going that route, but had we not done that, I don't know, like if I would have gotten to the point other than, I mean, what you described was what actually got us to do the MRI was I would, feel, I'd be like pain-free essentially doing anything just routine, like walking around, like just going about my day. But then as soon as I would go out for a run, it was like within the first block, I'd start to feel the pain pick up. And then if I continued, it would just only increase. So that side of it definitely mapped the stress fracture uh, side mm-hmm. of things, which I think was what ultimately got us to kind of look, look into that. But thankfully, like you said, early enough where I didn't have to sacrifice too much training with that particular injury. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a, Kind of a unique sign for someone to have low back pain and pain return and be that severe that early on into the run. Like most non specific low back pain that people have, running's kind of okay. So, like I've had hit episodes of low back pain in the past and um, running's actually made it better. Like being in extension and sort of like loading it and, you know, activating the muscles and sort of getting my exercise, it sort of makes it better. So, there can be, like you say, like my experience and your experience, two completely different situations. And then you know, sort of prompts, maybe there is something to get checked out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff for sure. Definitely worth looking into for anyone who's either running currently or looking to get into it. So you have that information and know what to look for when those situations do come around. Um, the other part to this, uh, or the other chapter, one of the other chapters I really wanted to talk to you about, because I think I think it kind of pairs well as like a next step is just kind of training basics for injury reduction. Because ultimately, if you're a runner, and you find yourself getting injured, a lot of times it is some form of either improper training load or combination of the way you're training. Or if it's not the training specifically, maybe something else in your life changed, like your stress load or sleep quality or nutrition, like you mentioned earlier, Uh, but when we're looking at just reducing the likelihood of an injury happening in the first place, the starting point really is proper training and training at a capacity where you're stressing yourself enough to make a, uh, an improvement, but not so much that you're welcoming these overuse injuries and things like that. So when it comes to training load, um, I'm always thinking about this as a kind of a combination of volume and intensity, and then kind of that, like when to introduce each or you were e- when to introduce the, the intensity to the volume and kind of what to do with the volume when you do introduce intensity uh is there anything that you like to see that kind of highlights for for an individual like where that kind of starting point is in their training basics to kind of get themselves in the right spot so that they aren't taking too many risks
1: yeah like i laid out in the book um in part one i did have like you say these uh training basics to reduce risk of injury. Um, I should probably say that the book is in two parts. First part, reduce risk of injury. Second part, increase running performance. And within that part one, I want to start with some basics because I want to start with some with like really no prior knowledge, sort of understanding like the general concepts. And then in part two, I have other training sort of modalities, which are a little bit more complex once you understand the basics. And the... Most people will recognize these rules, but I have in that chapter the 10% rule. So that goes back to your volume um, topic. So most people are familiar with the 10% rule, making sure that weekly mileage or your long run doesn't exceed 10% week by week so that you're in a, a safe zone and can slowly adapt and the body sort of recognizes it. And I do highlight the limitations of that rule in the book. I think there it's a a bit too basic it's a bit too simplistic and runners and training volumes and all that sort of stuff is very complex um it's only just looking at one aspect and that aspect's pretty conservative um but I wouldn't mind runners being more on the conservative side than they usually are but where I like to side with that is if you are a new runner and if you are or if you're an experienced runner and just looking for and the next starting point to the next race I would say the 10% rule is a good starting point. And then you listen to your body to see if you should continue with the 10% rule, or maybe you want to push it up to 15. Or if your body starts letting you down, if you're at a really high mileage, looking at ultra runners and 10% might be too much. So your body will tell you that it will start showing these early signs of under recovery or overload, or your calves might start getting a bit stiff. You know, your energy levels might start depleting maybe 10% is a bit too much. Maybe you need a recovery week or maybe you just need to back it down to six or 7%. But if you're starting from zero fitness and just getting into running on doing like a couch to 5k or something, following that 10% rule will be too gradual. Like it takes so long to build up to get to say, you know, 30 minutes of running. And so recognizing that this rule does have its limitations but is a good probably range finder to start. And then based on how your body's feeling, you can sort of move the needle plus or minus a couple of percent. Um, when you start getting north of like 20%, I think that's a recipe. No matter what runner you are, I think, you know, you, you probably need to be recovering pretty well, have everything pretty optimal to avoid injury. Um, but then the rest of the chapter, I, I do lay out the uh, 80-20 rule, which comes into intensity. Uh, and a lot of beginner runners get this wrong. We sort of, we start running special recreational runners. Like, like myself, I started running in my twenties. You know, we have recreational runs that start in their thirties, start in their forties, fifties, and most sports, they have a coach. I think you mentioned this last time we had a chat that like, there's a, we sort of have a, a plan, like people teach us the skills, people teach us the basics. And we have a coach in most sporting events. But for running, you kind of just you know just go out there and see how you go. And most people get this intensity thing wrong. They feel like when they run, everything should be like at a moderate to high intensity. Some runners just try and chase their personal best every single run. They like would run five k and let me do it better next time. Let me do it better next time. Let me do it better next time. And uh, it takes them a long time to recognize that running slow is actually a skill and is actually it helps build up their endurance. It helps um, reduce their risk of injury helps the adaptation process, helps you bounce back so you can run more frequently. And so this, I had to explain this 80-20 rule in the book, which is 80% of your overall volume should be at really low intensity, leaving 20% to push for harder efforts. And so most of your listeners are probably familiar with that rule, um, but something that's really important that you need to recognize. And similar to the 10% rule, there may be some fluctuations here and there, um, but there's good data around this golden ratio for elites, for beginners, for injury prevention, for increasing running performance, for enjoyment. Um, all those elements can be really key um, and can be very good for running longevity. You know, you enjoy the sport a bit more, and you can reduce the risk of injury, and can go like you know, you can train for decades, and it's sort of a running philosophy that you can move through decade after decade, and as long as you abide to these rules, it can be quite successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they make sense as good starting points, I think, in terms of putting you in the right ballpark. And then like you mentioned, you can adjust to individual stuff and, and then pay attention to the things you mentioned too, because once you start implementing these things, if you look for things like, you know, increased fatigue, increased muscle soreness, increased stress and irritability, or sleep begins to like be compromised or suffer like beyond where it was before. These are signs that regardless of whether you're someone who is able to push a little past 10% or needs to go below 10% are going to be kind of a little more universal in how they kind of surface with people in terms of like highlighting whether they're heading down a a dangerous path or a higher risk path And a lot of times. So I did really like how in, I think it was chapter three, you kind of talked about some of those early signs of injury that... Uh, you should pay attention to as you're kind of implementing some of these like 10% rules or 80, 20 approaches, or just simply adding speed work into your, into your plan for the first time in a while.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of them was I actually had a talk to Eric Hegedus, who is a researcher um, in the U S and a, a lot of the the content for my book actually comes from interviewing researchers and then diving into the research that they have uh, published. And, While it's not published yet, I had a talk to Eric about these sort of early signs, and he said there's a lot of objective and subjective data that we can follow to see if there's an injury around the corner. And while it's not published yet, he seems to be really confident that there's four elements that you want to consider. One is sleep, one is stress, one is just muscle soreness, and the other is fatigue. Uh, If you are ranking poorly in these four domains all at once, you need to back off your training, enhance your recovery. You need to pull back on all of your training loads until they start becoming optimal again because those those things, so like, okay, sleep, we can monitor. We can sort of, you know, people have um, wearable devices or just tracking how much sleep they get per night. Stress can be a little bit um, more subjective, Um, it's really hard to sort of quantify those sorts of things. Muscle soreness. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, just general fatigue energy levels. Um, a lot of these can be quite subjective, just listening to your body. But if you're ranking in those, if you're ranking poorly in all of those, definitely pull back on your training. You can't, you definitely can't increase your training because this is going to, first of all, there's warning signs to say that you're overtraining with the muscle soreness and fatigue and that sort of stuff. But you're also under-recovering. Like we say, you don't get stronger during those hard workouts. You need adequate recovery afterwards. And stress and poor sleep inhibit your, your body's ability to enter recovery mode and enhance those recovery benefits. And so you're overtraining, you're under-recovering, and injury is around the corner for you if you're ranking in those domains. So be proactive with those, um, be very sensible in saying, okay. Maybe I've just moved house, not sleeping well, increased amount of stress. I've just moved to a, a house that's quite hilly. And so my calves is getting a bit sore. Um, I, I, my general energy levels aren't really where they used to be. Now's not the time to push the envelope. Let me just train sensibly, make sure I adapt to these hills, make sure I get my sleep back, make sure my stress levels are um, back under control. And then I can start pushing uh, and increasing my training loads.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah this is all really good stuff i think um one thing I thought of when I was reading that part of the chapter where they were talking about those four things that uh that you mentioned was uh like it would probably be a good idea for you know return runners or new runners like in their off season to maybe just do a little bit of like documenting like or creating a scale for like things like how fatigued they feel or like a scale of like how sore their muscles feel and things like that, or even sleep, like how are you waking up at night? Or are you sleeping through the nights and so things like that? And then create a little bit of a baseline for yourself. And then when you do start the program, you can reflect on whether you're pushing past those things. And if you're pushing past them, like you said, in multiple areas or in a large degree for any of them, then, you know, that might be a sign where you're, you're asking a little too much of yourself or potentially like need to address your nutrition or something like that as well. Yeah.
1: And I don't think runners should be like overwhelmed with all this data and like monitoring. You can just start with sleep. I think sleep is so, so important. It's the number one recovery tool we have. And if you're sleeping well, your stress levels are, I'm going to say, probably like not horrible because sometimes when you're really stressed, then you can't really sleep that well. So if you're sleeping well, you're recovering well. And if you're waking up and feeling, I guess, with you know vigor you're sort of like you know able you've got the energy levels and you sort of feel um like you want to train again like that's all you really need um if you want to really hone in on the stuff then yes the the data the the tables if someone's like a coach such as yourself if, if if someone comes to you and says like they've got high levels of stress and like or like they're quite a poor sleeper like someone's historically quite a poor sleeper maybe you want to start tracking those sorts of things maybe you want to put pen to paper and start coming up with some sort of systematic um scoring system where they can sort of train around that but um I also don't want people to be overwhelmed and not do any of it because they feel like they're a bit it's a bit over their head so you can just start with the basics and just, yeah, listen, like it, it's easy to listen to your body. I think uh, once you, with enough practice, I think it's really easy to sort of recognize when you feel like your body's recovered or not. Sometimes that's all that's needed.
0: Mm-hmm. I do find like just being aware that those are factors is often enough to get people very far along that way in terms of just like, like sort of like monitoring it, at least in the back of their head, where like, if someone's not thinking about like poor sleep being an indication that they're maybe overtraining a little bit they may just blame it on something else and hit the coffee or something like that a little harder mm-hmm. in the morning and then find themselves in trouble just because they weren't even aware that that was something they should be looking out for but then once they kind of know that these are things to just kind of like even loosely monitor they start to kind of uh, in the in their head even if they're not writing it down or journaling it they're they're paying close enough attention to it where they're going to notice like big changes or multiple changes if it happens happens throughout the course of their program
1: Yeah. And then it gets tricky because if you're training for a marathon and you're in that peak part of your season, maybe muscle soreness is expected. Um, you know, that's, we know that you're not going to feel fresh and full of energy throughout your entire training plan. Mm -hmm. Um, so trying to interpret what's normal, what isn't. I think if you are in that peak sort of training session and you do have muscle soreness, but you are sleeping quite well and your intensity distribution, that 80, 20, Intensity distribution still intact, you know, maybe that's acceptable, but, you know, every situation is a bit unique. We need to consider that, um, not just have these blanket statements, which is why I say the 10% rule isn't just a blanket statement, 80 20, not a blanket statement, because it depends. Context matters, and everyone has these different goals, different philosophies. Um, You know, people are different. And so we need to make sure that's uh, a key factor as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And one thing I'll add to, especially with like the 80-20 rule too, because I think new runners sometimes will will hear that sort of thing, or they'll just hear the word speed work uh, or intensity training or something like that. And they'll automatically kind of their mind goes to the high end of that spectrum. And when we're looking at things like the 80-20 rule, we're essentially that 20%, we're looking at that point in which you cross over from easy into moderate. And basically that and above is going to count as that 20%. So if you want some kind of more specific data on that, we're looking at roughly like 80% of your max heart rate as being kind of that crossover point. Or if you have like data on your aerobic threshold, when you start crossing over that first ventilator threshold, you're looking at that point where you're crossing over into moderate intensity. And then if you keep going eventually higher intensity stuff, which is what we're going to want to count as that 20%. So don't just do 80% easy, moderate, and then the really hard stuff, 20%, because you may find yourself overloading a little bit with that, with that stuff that is the the sharp end of the spectrum, if you want to call it that.
1: Yeah. Essentially people might learn the 80, 20 rule, but then think they're training 80% low intensity, but they're actually going a bit too hard. And like I say, it takes people, sometimes it takes new runners a long time to learn the skill of running slow and mm-hmm. what, Um, I've mentioned in the book as well, is some runners can get stuck into this gray zone of intensity. And so essentially what that means is on their easy days, they're actually running a little bit too hard and it can just be a little bit too hard, but that's enough to sort of accumulate fatigue and increase that recovery time that's required. But because they're training slightly harder on their easy days, they can't push the envelope and they can't actually go faster on their harder days because they haven't had that recovery. And so they're running too fast on their easy days. They can't run fast enough on their faster days. And so they're just sort of blended into this gray zone of intensity. And I've seen it happen time and time again of recognizing this concept and then people actually start running slower and getting faster at the same time. And they start to enjoy that process a bit more. Um, it's a it's a bit of a mind shift because people are like, well, if I want to run fast, if I want to get faster, I need to like get faster with all of my workouts. I need to just get slightly faster. But This is why it's a bit misunderstood sometimes because it sort of sounds counterintuitive, but running slower, then they start feeling really fresh for their fast days and they're safely building up a huge weekly mileage because it's safer because it's lower intensity. They can recover. They can increase their mileage safer. There's less soreness. There's less muscle soreness and um, everything sort of just clicks into place. That right balance sort of gets the needle moving. And you need to try it out yourself. I, I recommend if you feel like you're in this gray zone of intensity, give it a try. If it does have profound benefits, continue with it. You're going to enjoy it. And yeah, uh, I do say to people, just have that that change in mind shift.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I one thing I like to do too with some of my new runners or runners who are, feel like they may be making mistakes in this category historically is, I mean, something as simple as just starting out with like a little talk test while you're out on your run since so much of these like crossover points are like oxygen dependent. Uh, so you have a situation where like, if you're running easy, carrying a conversation with a friend you're running with, or uh, you hope you might look a little goofy out there talking to yourself, but uh, you mm-hmm. can definitely do that. If you can string together like a few sentences and not feel like you're losing your breath from that, you know, chances are you haven't crossed over into a modern intensity in a significant way. But if you're, feeling like you're short of breath after a few words or a sentence or something like that. And you're, you're, you're probably pushing into that gray area you mentioned.
1: Yeah. I, I I use that talk test a lot, whistling, singing, um, just breathing through your nose, Mm -hmm. um, like interpreting, like, how are my legs feeling? How just trying to perceive your effort levels is a good metric to sort of hone in on and a, a good practice for a lot of people just while they're running just, think to themselves, how hard do do I feel like I'm working? And it does take a bit of practice just to hone in on those particular metrics. But I'm at a point now with practice where I can say, you know, I'm training at about a three out of 10. Well, this is about a four and a half out of 10. It's just um, those particular perceptions um, because yes, you can use heart rate. Yes, you can use um, pace sometimes, but these things have limitations and other things influence heart rate other things influence pace like terrain. Um, So, you know, you do, you can use those metrics as a bit of a range finder, but you can't go wrong if you use that data and also hone in on your internal perceived effort. If you correlate the two, it can be quite accurate.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. And I think uh, it's uh, a lot of it is just like you said, like kind of thinking about these things and you don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of listening to podcasts and music when I run from time to time, but sometimes it's as simple as leaving that at home for a run or two and just really pay attention to those stuff and focus on that. And then you'll have like, it'll become intuitive after a while. And, and like you said, once you kind of get dialed in, I end up end up using things like heart rate as a more of a post-workout analysis tool where I can tell basically exactly where I'm going to be out there when I'm running. And then, Afterwards I can look at those things and see if there's improvements from, you know, a couple of weeks to the next or however long of a timeline I'm looking for. And uh, you know, it's it's uh it's a skill set that you will learn if you're new.
1: <laughs> yeah. And like I said, it d- doesn't need to be overwhelming. Um, and you you might not even need to leave your music at home. You can just press pause for five minutes True. during your run and just hone in. Just Good point. and then do that at the start, do that at the end. You know, that's that's probably all that's required.
0: You don't have to be nearly as uh, masochistic as I am, I guess. (laughs) Hey, folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Bond Charge and their sleep mask and blue block glasses, as well as Buy Optimizer's magnesium breakthrough supplement. You can find links and discounts to that in the show notes and at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors um awesome so i i wanted to jump into another chapter that i guess would would sort of uh cross into part of the the book that you mentioned where you're looking at kind of training and performance and that was just the strength training and cross training chapter of the book i find it specifically the, the strength training component really interesting because when i first kind of got into running strength training was sort of looked at within the running sphere as like one of the sports where it was maybe a little bit less necessary. Or in some cases you would hear people talk about how, if you, if you have time to be in the gym doing strength work, you may as well be out there getting in some extra miles and that's going to move the needle better. And well, the part that I find really interesting is like, it's not like those people were like entirely wrong. Cause when you looked at the research, which you kind of laid out in the book, there was a clear benefit to strength work in tons of the team sports. I think if I remember right, it was like upwards to like a 30% reduction in injury risk. Uh, But then we got to running, we didn't really see that necessarily, that there was that same kind of reduction in injury risk to strength training, which I think led a lot of people, coaches included, to think like, well, strength training is not an injury prevention type of activity to include in in a a running program. Whereas now I think most well-planned running programs are going to have some strength component to it. Uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about just like why maybe some of that research showed up the way it did and what, what the implications though, what implications there are for runners with that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, the paper you're referring to, there was a huge paper looking at all different kinds of activities, all different kinds of sports and saying, okay, if people strength train, does it reduce their risk of injury? And they found that strength train does reduce risk of injury. Um, it reduces all injuries by a third and reduces or, and they say almost halves overuse injuries. So your overuse injury, which is mainly running related injuries, the risk is halved if you strength train. And so this was like the Holy grail that a lot of people like, yep, strength train. But when you look at the specifics of the, the study itself, it included like basketball, football, like all these team sports didn't have any runners whatsoever. didn't include any long distance recreational runners in that particular paper and so we can't say that you know this will benefit runners because they just weren't included in the study when it comes to injury prevention there's um theoretically it makes sense to strength train because we want to increase our adaptation zone you know these most running related injuries are due to your training exceeding your capacity exceeding the capacity of some individual joint, muscle, tendon. If you get an Achilles injury, it's because you've either overloaded or under-recovered and sparked that, that reaction. But if strength training has an added component of enhancing that capacity, if you can raise that capacity, then theoretically you can train harder without exceeding that capacity and without it breaking down. Some would argue that, yeah, but if you run more, if you run faster, if you do hill repeats, if you do um, running drills, all those sorts of things, then you can increase the capacity of that Achilles to therefore reduce your risk of exceeding it in races or the rest of your training. But then the counter argument of that is, then you're just doing more running and increases the likelihood of an overuse injury because you're doing the same thing. You're trying to address the issue by doing the same thing over and over and over again. But if you can raise the capacity of that joint, doing something else, then you're increasing your variety and therefore is the safer option to increase your capacity. Um, but the evidence doesn't show that yet. It's very hard to, I think I discussed this last time I was on, the research itself, the way research is designed, it's really, really hard to design a study to say, okay, let's attempt to prove if strength training reduces your risk of injury because it's just so multifactorial there's individual studies with pretty small sample sizes um focusing on one area of the body that shows that it can be effective strength training reduces risk of injury but when we get to bigger studies or systematic reviews or global sort of stuff it still sort of becomes same same because strong runners get injured just as much as weak runners you know stiff runners become just as injured as like um more flexible runners. It's they just get injured and it's just training errors. Um, we'd like we'd hope that in the future there's some research that starts to turn the needle and beliefs towards strength training to reduce risk of injury. A lot of health professionals, almost every health professional that I follow is an avid is an advocate for strength training to reduce injury because they recognize the importance but they just don't have any evidence to point to but they do have a lot of evidence to point to when it comes to increasing running performance tons of evidence to show and again someone could argue well if i run more then i just become a better runner yeah but then you're you know just doing a lot of running and increasing your risk of an overuse injury but what running doesn't do is tap into a different energy system or a different component of activating your tendons activating your muscles in a really slow heavy environment slow heavy conditions if you do a slow, heavy deadlift, your time under tension for those muscles and tendons is um, really building up the strength in a way that it's, it can't do during running, where it's like a very quick, active um, activity. And so, if you, yes, the bulk of your training should be running. We want to adapt and become, we want to adapt to being a runner. And we do that by a lot of running, but we can also tap into this other way of. Engaging the tendons because tendons love slow, heavy load. If you want to get your tendons really strong, time under tension, do some calf raises really slow and really heavy, they're going to adapt really quickly. And you can do 30 reps. You can do 30 reps of those, like three sets of 10, and you'll get a better benefit than running, you know, a a half marathon. And there was a good paper to show that looking at tendon synthesis and looking at tendon, um, essentially getting your tendon stronger, they looked at the the patella tendon. If you did, uh I think it was 3 sets of 12 or 4 sets of 12 at about 80% of your 1RM. So we're looking at say 30 to 40 repetitions. The tendon synthesis was the same as running a marathon. So if you want to get your tendon stronger, what would be the safer thing, doing 20 to 30 reps at slow intense uh slow heavy stuff or running a marathon and putting your body through that brutal kind of environment. And so you do want the two. You do want the majority of it being running because we want to adapt as a runner, but the added benefits of putting in some slow, heavy stuff as profound improvements in your running performance.
0: Yeah, it seems almost like this is even maybe that much more important for, say, a new runner who is going to be starting from a lower amount of volume as they go through the adaptation phases because, like, you know, ask an experienced runner to go run a half marathon or a marathon to get the benefits of the run, plus the things that come along for the ride, they may not bat their eye at that, but someone who's just getting into running, that's a tall order. In fact, the act of actually doing that run would likely create an injury if they continue down that path without the proper kind of buildup to it. So it sort of does like, I, I really did like how you kind of described like the, really the minimum dose is with return when it comes to things like tendon strength on running versus strength work.
1: Yeah. It doesn't need to be a lot. It can be twice per week. And it can be four exercises. Um, it can be squats, deadlifts, calf raises, lunges, you know, and start off light because if you're not used to it, your body needs to adapt to it. So we don't want to go straight away into really heavy stuff and get injured. We want to work at your adaptation zone. So start at your adaptation zone, but then slowly build up. And if you do that twice a week, that's, you know, an hour per week out of your time. If we, ha- if we break up into two 30-minute sessions, And then the rest can just be running or cross training and, um, you know, providing that, that really nice balance.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And then I think there's also just, it's worth mentioning too, like oftentimes I think we get into these topics and we start thinking almost like down the, the, the sole lens of performance when it comes to running, when in reality too, like strength work has benefits to your health in general, outside of just running performance and you know we want to be healthy people and age age gracefully as possible so you know i I think when you look at like the strength strength work component to a lifestyle as you age it becomes even that much more important because things like balance like how do you respond to falling over or like if you're falling over in general that could be a sign that there's a weakness somewhere and that could be addressed through strength work and uh i think strength work is something that's approachable for all ages but the sooner you start it in your life the more uh, benefit you're going to have later on when you're older and it's a little harder to kind of start implementing those sort of things into your lifestyle yeah we we just talked about
1: um bone health bone stress reactions and how detrimental that can be to your running and strength training is a great component to building up your density um people think that you know the ground reaction force when running like can build up your bone density, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really do a good job because it's just one load in one direction. Um, But where the bones tend to react really well to and start to build up that bone density is like different movements, different directions, pulling you in different directions. It's not, and it's not necessarily ground reaction forces. It's also the muscles pulling and tugging on the bone in different directions because bone attaches that muscle attaches to bone. Then when that muscle activates and pulls the bone in a different direction, it actually that that pulling actually stimulates the bone to grow. And so if we're only just doing this one axle direction of running every single time, um, the body, like the bones are just going to get bored of that particular one or adapt to that, but it's only in one direction. Whereas if you're doing strength training, if you're throwing heavy things around, if you're pushing sleds and doing some team sports where you're changing direction, especially like you said in your early days, in like your teens and in your twenties, you're going to have, like, you're going to set up your bone density and have a really big foundation compared to someone who's a little bit more frail, um, only been loading the bones in one particular way for a long period of time. Um, that bone density profile is going to look a lot different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh I want to kind of transition a little bit into uh, cross training because I think a lot of times when people hear strength work, they they automatically think, oh, that's just part of my cross training protocol. When in reality, I tend to view strength training as like something that's going to be a complement to the running. So part of the actual program, whereas cross training is going to be like uh, getting on a bike or an elliptical or a stairmaster or hopping in the pool or something like that. Uh, what is the benefits to cross training for someone who's primary activity is running?
1: Yeah, good question. I think most people, well, some people might have different definitions of cross-training, but I'm on the same wavelength as you. I think um, cross-training isn't strength training. I think strength training is a key component to a running athlete and cross-training may or may not be an added benefit depending on their goals, depending on what what's happening. But essentially, if yeah, cross-training is a way to Continue building upon your cardio fitness without that, with a bit of variety. And you may or may not need cross training. It depends. If someone is, let's use two people as an example. Let's just say we've got a a moderate runner who runs four times per week, 5K, 30 minutes, like, you know, on those days. And then on their weekend, they do a typical long run, which is like, you know, eight to 10K or like 60 minutes or something like that. Pretty typical. If they're, Fine with that, slowly building up, and they're not really getting injured, um, have good energy levels. They probably don't need to cross train. They can strength train, definitely, but they probably don't need to cross train. If you have someone who is an ultra runner or really serious marathoner and they want to run six to seven times per week, but they're also getting overuse injuries, you know, maybe there's a conversation to you're getting these overload injuries because you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. That's why it's an overload injury. How about we still keep your cardio the same, but let's add in some variety so that you're not overloading your body in the same direction over and over and over again. And so this is where variety can be really nice for people because all of a sudden you're still stimulating that cardiovascular system sometimes in in different ways and different intensities that might actually value your running but it's different like if you're cycling, you're not pounding the, the pavement um you're you're utilizing your glutes a little bit more you're pushing your your quads in a different position you're sort of offloading your calves, Achilles and feet to some degree compared to running so you're not getting that brutal hard smack on the ground every time. Um, and so it can be a good added benefit and sometimes it can just be for enjoyment some people, run six times per week and they just, you know, it just becomes a little bit boring for them and they want some variety. Like I remember when I first completed my marathon, I then transitioned into triathlons and absolutely loved the variety of triathlons. I was Mm -hmm. swimming, I was cycling, I was doing all these combinations of exercise and really thrived off that variety and my enjoyment for running increased. And so everyone has different motivations. Everyone um, has different injury histories. different training plans, different phases in those training plans. And so we know that for some cross-training can be really advantageous to people it can reduce their risk of injury. Cause like we said, we're adding the variety um, and some people just need it, but sometimes for some, that's not really that important. So we need to, you know, context matters. We need to pick our patient, pick the person and try it out and see if it really has added benefits.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it even it gets another, like, Piece of context too when you start getting into like ultra marathon running. And then if you take it another step of get into like kind of some of the more trail-based stuff where you have steeper climbs and descents and things like that, where you know the mechanics of pedaling a bike may not translate great to like a flat road marathon. But if you find yourself on a race where, you know, there's 15% incline, now all of a sudden, you know pounding those pedals or mashing those pedals uh, is going to translate a little more specifically to those mechanics. Uh, Same with, I think we see this a lot with a lot of the European ultra runners too, is they'll do like ski mountaineering and things in the winter. Uh, You know, I'm sure that probably began when they just didn't have access to running or maybe they started out in that sport, but that seems to translate very well to some of those like longer mountain type trail races as well. So I think once you extend the distance of the race a bit and then alter the train enough where you're not just running flat and straight. These cross training activities tend to have a little more maybe over appropriate application. And like you said, if you can reduce that uh, impact, uh, you have a little bit of a value add there. and you know there's a there's a reason why the triathletes and the skiers and the cyclists tend to have a larger training load from a time standpoint than runners because the limiting factor of those sports are are a lot smaller from an impact standpoint.
1: Yeah. And swimming's a good example. You're taking away all of that ground reaction force (laughs) and you're using a lot of your arms and it's like something, it's, it's totally different to the running stuff. So you can almost double your training load, your weekly training load by just keeping to the same amount of running that you're currently doing and just doing a lot more swimming. Um, So yeah, can be said for that. But then triathletes, you know, they get injured as well because they're, I, I recognize for triathletes, their volume is so high. Yes, it is full of variety, but you also need the recovery to balance as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's a constant um, juggling game, trying to balance out training load and recovery. So that needs to be considered.
0: Yeah. Everyone has their their problems to solve when it comes to endurance sports. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and this is why everyone gets injured, like yeah.
0: Yeah. running related injuries. You
1: mm-hmm. know, you can say yourself, like how many injuries, like I've had maybe five significant running related injuries in my couple of years of running um you've already shared like several of your running related injuries it's just it's part of the sport it's kind of like you need to um it's almost like you just need to juggle and be proactive and learn and you know do something different based on your past mistakes and those sorts of things you can't just simply expect to do all these things and train really hard and not get injured like the the prevalence of running related injuries is so bloody high compared to other sports and other um demographics so yeah we just need to roll with the punches learn and then be do something different next time to make sure we're not doing the same mistake over and over again
0: Mm -hmm. perfect well brody it's been awesome to have you back on the podcast for a third time and i think uh i'll look forward to hopefully a fourth at some point down the road when we have another topic (laughs) to dive into Uh, But before I let you go, do you want to share with our listeners where they can find you? And then also uh, details on your book where they can find that?
1: Absolutely. So um, the run smarter podcast, if you, if you enjoy your podcast and want to start raising your running IQ, so you can go there. Uh, The book is called run smarter. And if you type in run smarter, maybe type in Brody sharp um, it's available on all online um, bookstores. So Amazon, Booktopia, those sorts of things. And if you're into YouTube, um, I've just started Run Smarter with Brody Sharp and you can type that in and start, I guess, absorbing a bit more content that's more visual, um, more of a visual element compared to just the book and the audio formats.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brody. It was great to chat. Thanks, Zach. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to hundred miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiova- cardiovascular fitness Or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at ZachBitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter.